Good morning. It's DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. All right, coming up later today, we're going to talk college football with A-Rod, the former Ute assistant, now a BYU assistant, and of course, former BYU player back in the day. Uh, so we will talk with uh, A-Rod coming up. Good to have him back on the show again, and we'll do that. Also, we got David Locke coming up uh, to talk NBA. You can hear that in just a few minutes. And uh, Steve Cleveland. Now, i got a running joke here, and uh, I don't know if Steve's aware that I'm aware, but when he came on, we had him on late in yesterday's show in the 9 o'clock hour. We're going to replay it for you here. He came on, and he said to uh, Yach, Yach actually texted PK on Sunday, hey, we usually have Steve on Monday. Do you have something for him? you want to talk to him? You know, there's no games coming on. What do we want to talk to him about? I said, yes, because I have a couple questions. And I wanted to run by him the whole thought of Cuban moving, Mark Cuban saying that they could play the uh, – the NBA could restart in mid to late May before that June 1 date. He thought he'd take the uh, the under, not the over on that, which would be great news. <clears throat> but what would it come back? You know, would guys, would they want teams traveling? Uh, would they go to one city and, you know, just rent out a couple of hotels? Maybe have guys just, you know, in the, in the MGM and in the or- Orleans just walk to games, really try to, you know, confine and keep the guys as safe as possible and semi-isolated. Um, you know, would that work logistically? And so I wanted to talk to Steve about that, and we will. And then we have a couple follow-up questions, and Steve riffs into this great story about Austin Ainge scouting a game at Fresno State. And Steve and Austin, who obviously you know played, and Steve knows him through BYU and, and playing there, uh, they went to lunch. And so they got into a whole lot of player development stuff and analytics, and Steve tells some great stories about this Wyoming-Fresno State game. <clears throat> so you're going to love that. That's coming up later this hour. You definitely want to hear that. And it also goes to one of my theories, which is, and this actually started with Sloan. There was a time in the 90s where Sloan was really getting uh, lit up for, I don't know what it was, maybe it was playing David Benoit in front of Brian Russell or not playing some young guy. I don't know what it was. And I remember telling people, listen, Jerry, in any given job, an employee does 100 things. And any of us can look at someone else's job, and we can do, we can say, hey, you're doing these five things wrong. Even if you're pretty good at your job, you're probably messing up five things. And we can spot it. And maybe we can even look at 10 or 20 things and say, hey, they're doing them right. But when you're good at your job, you're doing a lot of things right that most people don't even know you're doing. There's so much going on behind the scenes. If you tried to walk in at 4.30 in the morning and do Yach's job, now you may think as a producer, Yach should do this or should do that. You know, he should have played this drop then. Why don't they get this guest on the air, right? And, and you might even be right about some of this stuff. But there's 70 things Yach does during the course of his day that you don't know. And if you came in, you'd probably mess him up and the show would sound like crap. And it's the same thing as a host. And it's the same thing at TV. Well, it's the same thing for coaches and ADs and NBA general managers and uh, whoever else. Players. You know, they're doing 100 things. Joe Ingles is doing 100 things to prepare for a game. And you don't know what they are. And if you did it wrong, and it has to do with sleep, it has to do with die out, diet, it has to do with uh, habits and how they practice and how they train and how you interact with teammates and coaches. There's a lot of stuff going on. And if you come in as an outsider to, into any profession, and it doesn't matter, lawyer, doctor, salesperson, uh, whatever you do, there's stuff you just know as you do your job over time, and you get some new person who's hired, and you're like, oh, they don't know this, they don't know that, and they got to be trained, right? And so it's great having Steve Cleveland on, because even when we don't know what he's going to talk about, he's got all these things that he's doing right, and that Austin Ames is doing right, and when they pull the curtain back, it's fascinating. 
Austin's got a number on his phone, and Steve's going to tell you about it. I had no idea. I mean, I know they do analytics, so I shouldn't say I have no idea, but it was so specific, I didn't know until Steve told the story. I didn't even know to ask the question. And so we hadn't gone stream of consciousness like with Steve like we do once a week. You know, we'd never know this stuff. I thought it was really cool. We'll play it for you coming up next. All right, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. So here's what we got going. David Locke next, and then we'll have Steve Cleveland later in the show. A-Rod's going to be on. We've got stuff going at Facebook. Join us at DJ and PK and on Twitter at David DJ James. And we will get to all of that coming up right here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. Time to bring in David Locke, radio voice of the Utah Jazz. Uh, We talked to him late in the show on Friday. Had some interesting talks with him about basketball and about the Jazz and some old Jazz teams. And you're going to hear him reference, uh, he and I were on uh, social media on several platforms. uh, Facebook Live and uh, Periscope and Google and I don't know what else. Uh, While the NBA was doing the Jazz Day on John Stockton's birthday and they ran five Jazz games. And so... You'll hear him reference last night we were doing this. So that that's what that's all about. We're talking about that Thursday Jazz Marathon on NBA TV. Here's David Locke with PK and I on 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. David, good morning. Thank you very much for your time yesterday. I enjoyed it. That was fun. That was fun. I have no idea how many people were watching that, but whatever. It was us. And... It's hard to tell. Yeah. I tried to figure it out last night, but it was on five different formats. So it's hard to tell. And yeah. Periscope's numbers are always really high, so I can't tell if they're really true. So I am curious. You had uh, you had some time uh, in isolation, some downtime. Did you give up on the NBA and crunching numbers, or or no? You're still trying to learn about no, the no, NBA I even still, when it's not. I still playing. played around, tried to find fun little tidbits, and looked the other day. I was checking who the best defenders on drives were in the NBA, and then I was looking who the best defenders on isolation were, trying to see if I could figure out who the best on out open floor defender is using metrics. Didn't figure. It sounded like Gary Harris is much better than I thought, at least statistically. Rudy Gobert's like in the top five on drives, by the way. Like all those times somebody backs out Rudy and tries to beat him, they never do. Or they very rarely do. Um, so, yeah, I was trying to just figure out, like, I don't know, just playing. I don't see if I get smarter somehow. Well, I think the question for me, David, is do you think that the Jazz should get Rudy Gobert the ball more? Um, I think the league is, I'm going to just take it seriously because I'm so excited to talk basketball. I don't want to lose this opportunity, so I'm just going to take you seriously. Yeah. Um, and the, um, but uh, the league has really changed. Uh, the priority of the best defenses in the league are to deny the rim, and they've become much more successful at that, or you know, subtly more successful a shot or two a game than uh, they used to be. Now, if you actually look at Rudy's numbers, he still leads the league in dunks. He still leads the league, I think, in in you know, high rate of shots in that in that area, or percentage of his shots in that area he leads the league. So um, the Jazz are still doing as good a job as they can, but there's an idiom in the league that you uh, 
the defenses dictate how many shots are taken at the rim and offenses dictate how many threes are taken. And that's kind of where, you know, I think the league has gone that they're denying, they've, you know, Quinn broke the league a little bit with that high pass. And I think everyone decided that they probably shouldn't allow five dunks a game. We were talking with uh, Tim Lacombe about uh, Matt Van Comen transferring a Pleasant Grove high kid who went to the U for a year, and now he's going to transfer. And he's 7'4". And, you know, where might he go? And Tim said, well, somewhere with an older coach. And they're like, well, why is that? And he says, well, because the older coaches are still using four out and one in. And he says, it's not – you can't just say it's the older coach. But, he says, but largely the trend is – the younger coaches are more likely to go five out, and we're seeing more of that, but mostly with the younger guys and not so much the older guys. In the NBA, how far are we away from everybody going five out all the time? I mean, that sounds extreme and over the top, but we see how this is trending. So what's it's, But it's really being dictated by defenses. That's what I think people are – at least the way I view it is it's being dictated by the defense. So Milwaukee has decided this year that they're – in the last two years, they've allowed 30% of the shots at the rim last year and 29% of the shots at the rim this year. That's a, it's a crazy low number. So they, they're just going to put Giannis and Brooke Lopez at the rim and deny you the ability to get to the rim. Well, really, your own, if they really commit to that, which they have, then it's really hard to get. So you're, now your choices are you're not getting the shot at the rim the way you want to. So now your choices are whether or not you play in the half court you play a mid-range jumper or a three, and it's the math is so bad on the mid-range jumper in that circumstance that you then are take you need to take fifty, sixty threes to combat that defense. And the way you do it is by having you know every single guy on the roster be able to shoot thirty-six or better from three. You know we're interestingly enough we're probably the worst matchup for Milwaukee because Rudy test them at the rim a little bit, and then every single one of our guys shoots 38% or better on catch-and-shoot threes, and they're going to give up. They would give up that catch-and-shoot three because of the fact that that's their, their defensive scheme. Um, and so we're heading that direction because if you can't get to the rim, then you got to shoot a three. Now, what the, the flip side of this is that, you know, how do you defend the rim? Um, Toronto's doing it really, really well. Um, without, you know, a big center per se. Serge Ibaka's, you know, pretty long, and Marc Gasol, when he plays, plays kind of that lumbering spot. But they've been doing it without Gasol for most of the year. Um, Miami does it pretty well um, with Bam Adebayo, who's 6'9". I mean, I think that's going to be the question, is how do you still continue to defend the rim if you're trying to play five out? I think the question for me is, how could you let Ron Boone carry his own golf clubs and golf bag for 18 holes? Why didn't you carry it for him? Uh, uh, because Ron Boone is a stubborn, stubborn sucker who would not um, <laughs> take a push cart. Oh, he wouldn't? <laughs> no, my daughter had one and offered to start the round. Like, would you oh, like my push cart? Yeah. I can carry. He wouldn't do it. And then I offered and he wouldn't do it. Okay. No, well, the back he wouldn't story, do it. We like saw he's... them out on the golf course walking the other day. Yes. I love that new rule, by the way. I love that. I think that they should adapt. The, I think they should make all golf holes now play with the cup up an inch, and you just putt to it. I, it was fascinating to me on so many levels. One, I thought it increased pace of play. Um, yes. Two, everyone's scores were lower. Three, yes. I think somehow putting into a hole makes you putt it too hard, 
And so yes. you run, you end up running, you know, two or three putts a day by the hole too far. Whereas nobody putted long all day long with the with the cup up. Like there's a psychology to something, and um, it might be no differently than like when you're trying to get a shooter to shoot over the front of the rim. So you put a broom there, and they shoot over the rim. The minute you drop the broom, they you know they suddenly hit to the front of the cup, the front of the rim again. I don't know, but there was something to it. I kind of liked it. Pretty, well, I, I scored really well, so that's why I really liked it. But um, yeah. Has it occurred to you maybe you were just hot that day and that, you know, it's too small a sample size here? You're jumping to conclusions? No. <laughs> okay. There's definitely something to it. I think there is. I think what he's saying, DJ, is correct because we saw them out on the golf course before they closed them, obviously, and I felt the same way with that cup being up a little bit. Yeah, I, I felt – I also felt it gave me a sense of confidence that I didn't have before. Yeah. And, and I was worried about stuff. And now it took, and as you know, having played golf a number of times yourself, the more you could take your mind out of it and not overthink it, the better you are. And and the putting was, you just you, you just had to hit it, man. There's There was nothing to be thinking about. Just hit the ball. And it made me hit the ball. My stroke on the ball, my putting, was much better. I, I ended up, I had, uh, I think I had a 75 that day. Yeah. Wow. Oh, there and, you go. Yeah. Nice. And you guys were at, you yeah. were at Bonneville, right? Yeah, right before they closed it. Yeah. 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 You would have you lo- lost by one to one of my playing partners, just so you know. Booner shot a 74, oh, that- huh? Yeah. No. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> Yeah, but I agree with what you say there as far as the putting. Well, I think there's something to you're just like it seems so easy, right? You're just like if I told you to putt the ball and hit the wall, you'd be like, okay, sure, no problem. Like you're hitting this thing that's off above the ground, so it just seemed really natural. Your point of confidence is 100%. I hadn't thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. You're, like, how easy is this? Like, oh, I'm just trying to hit a thing that's like poking out of the ground. You think you could do it every single time? Whereas, yes. like, trying to actually put it in the hole somehow seems very psychologically different. Now, how do you? I was acting I mean, as a dad of a golfer. I was trying to figure out drills that, like, we could play, we could do that would gain that confidence into her putting stroke, so that when you know she's playing in a tournament in the holes, the other way that she had that, I had didn't, couldn't quite figure it out, but it was, it was a concept at least. So golf closes, golf courses are closed here. You're in Summit County, uh, so now it's a lockdown there, huh? Yeah, I can't quite figure out all the rules here. Like, so here's the really important question. Pretty Bird is open today for grab and go. Can I drive down from Summit County and get Pretty Bird and drive home? I have no idea. I don't I don't know how Neither that works. Neither do I. Yeah. But like these are the like Pretty Bird is the definitely the item that, you know, is gonna push us over the top. Well, I would say do it. See what happens. Well, I mean, I'm not going to get arrested. I'm just trying to be – I'm pretty certain no one's, like, going to stop me on my way out and ask me where I'm going. And then if, if he does, I'll say, you know, going to Pretty Bird, and they'd say that's fine, obviously. But, um, no, I mean, I'm just trying to – I really don't know some of the rules. Like, I'm, I'm trying to read the bylaw. I'm just trying to do the right thing for the fellow citizens. I mean, we have, we have one of the highest rates per capita of COVID-19 of any – of any county in the country, in the world, so let's and we have an older population, and we are pretty prime here in Summit County with all the people that came in from out of from different parts of the world before they shut it down, and 
we have all the second homeowners that are flooding out of their cities that are rampant with COVID-19 and deciding to come here and probably bring it with them. So I understand what they're doing. I'm 100% behind it. I'm just trying to, I just am just curious on what, what I'm allowed and not allowed to do. I don't quite get it. Well, I would think I'm, that they're not. I'm dense. I need them to like lay it out for me. <laughs> I would think that they're not closing Interstate 80 or US 40 through right. town, right? So if you're in your car, you're not a public health risk to anyone, I would think. So if you're just in your garage and you get out and drive and you get on the freeway and go to Salt Lake, I wouldn't think that that's an issue. But I don't have any idea because I'm like you. I don't. This is the first time I've ever heard of this. So I don't have anything to go on as far as what right. the rules are. Right. I mean, it sounds like Salt Lake's pretty close to in the next 24 to 48 hours being on some sort of lockdown, just depending on whether it's going to be listening to Aaron Mendenhall's Twitter last night. But it's either going to be, you know, unified with the county and the state or it's not. And um, she's trying to have it be a unified stance. And if they're not going to do it, then it sounds like she's on the verge of something. How much time do you think these guys are going to need whenever we get back as far as a form of a mini training camp? That's a. Um, someone said to me, "Who knows better than I do?" They're going to need four weeks. Now that doesn't mean four weeks of training camp, but they're going to need to know if they're starting on July first. They're going to need to know by June first. So it might be two weeks of training camp or seventeen days of training camp, but they, they're they're going to need a, a month to know beforehand to start to get their bodies close. Um, which seemed little to me, but I mean, I don't think we have a lot of time. So that seems better than, than I thought the answer might be. Any idea how that'll be broken uh, down? I mean, like two weeks of like a mini camp, they're just scrimmaging. It's just them. I, I just don't, I mean, it's just so unprecedented. I have no idea. And, you know, I almost wonder whether or not it's, you know, the first two or three days you're just back out on the basketball floor and then you actually just play a scrimmage every other day for like five days. I don't have any idea. Like, you've got to ramp the, the – I do understand this from talking to Mike Elliott in years past about some other issues. You know, that you have this peak performance and you have this low level and it you, you actually want to – like, he, a lot of trainers and people believe – if we actually just played every other day, the injuries would be down. Like you just would get into a pattern and your body would get used to it. So there's some level where you want to try to get these guys body used to, you know, really playing. Um, and that, you know, you probably don't need to run through your playbook again. I would assume they still remember that. And they, I mean, they probably have to be reminded a little bit, but it's not quite training camp, right? With new teams members. So maybe that's what it is, is that you're doing something in a sense of your, you know, coming out the first few days and getting yourself ready and starting to get it up to peak level. And then once you get it to peak level, you just want to play every other day so that you stay there. But I don't know how long it takes to get to that point. He's David Locke, radio voice of the Utah Jazz and a guy who's ready to change the game of golf as we know it. David, thanks. I have, for- a, re- I have a really, really important question, DJ, and I think you're the only person that can answer this question for me. Oh, yeah. I'm doing what everybody else is doing in cleaning my office, which is a total pig star because I like chaos. And I have the basketball official NBA guides, generally the sporting news guides, for every, like, NBA year. And I have, like, every pro basketball forecast and every pro football forecast. Those are stats books. I'll keep those. Someone, there might be something. But, like, the old NBA guide registers and the old NBA guides, do I – 
do I have, is it time to get rid of those with this thing called the internet around and that you'll never look at those ever again? I think that you build a bookshelf behind you and put them on so that when you're doing stuff from home, you look really smart. I don't think you need them so much for the info that's in them. I think basically they become the set for the TV studio that is your office. Yeah, I got views, so I don't have that. <laughs> well, find an interior wall and spin the desk around. All, All right. right. Thanks, yeah. David. See, you're always one step ahead, though. I'm impressed with yeah. your answers. There's David Locke, the radio voice of the Utah Jazz. Coming up next, Steve Cleveland. All right, Mark Cuban has floated out there, and I know some of you are excited by this, and some of you think it's utterly ridiculous, but that's why we want to have Steve Cleveland on. Mark Cuban has floated out this concept that, hey, the NBA might be able to play uh, before June 1, mid to late May. Well, that'd be great. I'm all for it. Because if that can happen, then a lot of things can happen, right? We get some sports back, but that probably means a lot of things for the service sector, the economy, if, if we can do that. So, but, but flying guys all over the country doesn't sound like it might be practical. So one of the many concepts is, well, what if they did it all in one city? A city like Las Vegas, where you've got uh, multiple gyms in casinos so guys could literally walk from their hotel room back and forth to the game and simplify everything. Plus, you got an NHL arena you could use. you got a college arena at UNLV you could use, um, high school and a JC gym and all kinds of stuff. Logistically, does that really work? Well, Steve Cleveland coached basketball for a long time and has been in Vegas when multiple conference tournaments are going on. We'll talk to him about how uh, realistic he thinks that is. We'll do that next. And also, he's got an Austin Ainge story that is spectacular. I had no idea he was going to drop this on. So, so if you're into uh, NBA scouts and how they do they work and what they look for in college students and how much or college players and how much of it is the eyeball test and how much of it is analytics. Uh, Steve Cleveland's got a story for you. He'll do that next. Stay with us. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Take The Zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of The Zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. Time now to welcome in Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider. He joins DJ and PK, and Steve is joining us. On the Sprint Special Guest Line, lease any phone and get an iPad or Samsung Tab A for $99.99. Visit the Sprint store nearest to you. Steve, good morning. Good morning. So, Steve, I want to set your basketball expertise aside and go to the less fun part of the job, basketball CEO and logistics guy, because we've heard these plans to restart the NBA and one of the plans to minimize travel, which would seem to be a huge problem, is to put everybody in one city. And, for instance, a city like Vegas, right? There are multiple uh, hotels that have arenas in them. Plus, they've got an arena that's built for the NHL there. Plus, UNLV has an arena. Presumably, there are high school gyms to, uh, that could be rented out that teams could practice in. Maybe you can get some uh, bus company and charter a couple buses for each team. Are the logistics of this, I mean, is this one of the things that sounds good on the surface, like giving athletes uh, in the winter sports another year of eligibility? But when you start digging into it, 
it gets too complicated. You've been in Vegas when there are multiple conference tournaments going on. That's not the same thing, but maybe it's close. How do you think that would work? You know, I mean, if you're, talk, if you're talking about doing all of the games, all of the playoff games uh, for the Western Eastern Conference in Vegas, you know, I, I think that might be a logistics nightmare just in terms of, uh, you know, obviously we're going to use high school gyms, which seems to be that would be a difficult thing. I think you have you've got a couple of big time arenas there where you could probably play games during the day, kind of like a C2A tournament game where you have games at 12, 2, 4, 6, and 8. And if you had two or three facilities, it'd probably work out. I mean, there's some, the, the good part about that is it eliminates a lot of travel, though they are all traveling privately anyway. And so there would be no fear of uh, you know, any kind of disease situation or circumstances. But I, I, I kind of like the idea in, in something in a, in a central location where uh, – I think the most important thing is that when, you know, 200 million people turn a TV on, there's an NBA game. And I, I think that uh, – I don't know financially how this all works with the NBA and the TV contracts, but I'm telling you right now, it'll be must-watch TV. It doesn't matter, I mean, where they really play them. Everyone's going to be watching, whether there's fans there or not. And I, I know the players would much rather have fans there. That's, a, that's probably an unlikely thing. If they end up doing this in May or June – uh, I still think we're in the midst of this thing where they're not going to take chances of bringing fifteen or 20,000 people together. But uh, I do know this. If they do it, they have it, they can market it, and everybody's going to be watching. You've been in situations where you've been a coach and you've had to bring somebody back off an injury and you recognize that it takes some time because you can be off just a few days and really miss out on conditioning and whatnot. So the point for you is how long do you think they will need before they can, once they say we're going to get back, let's pick the date. So how much lead-in time and workout time do you think they would need before they're ready to actually play legitimate competition? Well, you know, in, in a normal world, you know, they, they, they'll have, you know, preseason camp and, and uh, you know, they'll spend a, come in for a couple of weeks and, and do that. You guys have been a, a part of that a lot. And, uh, but I, w- I would think that if everybody had a couple of weeks where they could go hard and do it, I mean, they play, they've got, you know, 50 or 60 games under the belt already. I, I would suspect that most of these guys are taking care of themselves, the ones, at least especially the ones that haven't been sick. And even those, they're probably – they're, they have their own, you know, they have their own facilities in their homes. They have access to places that I'm sure that shots are getting up and they're doing certain things, just not in big groups. So I would think that you could pull something off like this in two weeks, two or three weeks, you know, max. Uh, it's not like they're going to have to put in a new offense and new out-of-bounds plays and all of that kind of thing. I mean, that'll come back to them pretty quick, and they can do that stuff. The film part, uh, all, all of that technical part can be done you know, even earlier than that. Once they get the go-ahead, that hey, let's say it's going to be uh, May 25th is when it's going. To, that's the starting date, or June 1st. And when every, I would assume that every NBA team has been tested. Is that right? Uh, if it has, they haven't gone public with that. We know a lot okay. of a lot of teams have been. Several teams have been tested. We know the Jazz have okay. been tested. We know the Celtics have been tested. We know Toronto's been tested. But I, I don't think we know that all thirty have. I, it might I mean, be true. I would think that that would be the highest priority. That first of all, we're not even going here until everybody's been tested, and that means personnel, coaches, everybody. You, you know, we, we want a sterile environment where everyone's clean and healthy. So. 
that has to happen. And w- once that happens, then, then I think that two weeks will be plenty of time for them to, to get ready. And, and uh, it's not like I said, it's, it's stuff they've already been doing. It's just a matter of getting some runs in. And, again, the thing is, too, you do it slowly. You don't want to get people hurt. Uh, kind of like they do in the preseason. So I think two weeks will be plenty of time. And uh, considering I think a lot of them right now already, even, you know, even being quarantined, a lot of these guys have facilities in their homes or on their properties uh, or have access to that kind of thing. So they, they, uh, they, they could do that. I, I, just, I think that's really doable. You know, it's, uh, the stakes are so high because if you talk to people in uh... – in Montreal, you know, the Expos had a really good team. And if they and who knows if they've been able to win it all or not in nineteen eighty in nineteen ninety four when the baseball strike happened. But the Expos had a good team that year. And if they had, would there have been the momentum to build a new stadium or would they have not moved to Washington? And I think we can look at parallels now. And they may be imperfect but it doesn't stop people from wondering and talking, you know, is Kempo going to stay in Milwaukee? If he wins the title, is he more likely to stay? If he, you know, he's got basically a year and a few months left on his contract now. And, and Milwaukee's just having that kind of season where everything seems to go right. Now, he did have a knee injury and miss a couple games, but it seems like the stakes are high for a franchise like the Bucks. because how often do the, do the smaller market cold-weather teams have a legit shot at a title? Well, you know, I, I kind of watched that and listened to that as well. And, I, you know, I've, I've listened to his sound bites. I've listened to people kind of analyze this and talk about it. And, uh, you know, first thing, I, number one, I, I think he really, really, really wants to win a championship in Milwaukee. And, and that's doable. I mean, they, they, it could happen. Uh, but I will be shocked if he stays. And uh, I, I just think that it, it's a good run. It's, it, you know, there, there's a lot more. These guys have so much going on outside of the game and finding a niche and finding a place that you can live in a, in the United States somewhere that you're comfortable with. Uh, you know, I'm not – he's never lived really in the cold weather, has he? I mean, I, I, I'm assuming he's been in mild climates in Greece and in Europe. I'm not sure other places he's lived. But uh, uh, I think that a warmer weather kind of community – uh, wherever he goes, he's going to be loved and appreciated, and, and, and there's going to be good coaches, and he's going to get taken care of. But I think if they don't, well, I think for sure if they don't win, win something here soon, he, he's definitely gone. He, he wants to go somewhere where they're going to build a team, and they got a pretty good team right now that has been built. But uh, my gut feeling is he leaves, and uh, whether they win a championship or not, I think he'd feel a lot better. It'd be kind of like. Uh, Kawhi win a championship. I, I did what I was supposed to do here. I brought it here, but you know what? Uh, I'm in charge of my wife and my family and everybody else, and, and this is what I want to do. And that's that's part of the business. I think it's kind of, it's kind of like you know, it used to be uh, somebody left a high school or a college and transferred. It. Everybody got really offended by it. You know, that's just the nature now. College, everybody's leaving. People trying to find the right place for them, and the NBA is not any different. And uh, I, I just, I just don't see him staying there. So this time, every year we see a bunch of college kids, the one and dunners, who decide they're going to come out, and they've got a bunch of stuff looking forward to as far as individual workouts, the combines, and all that stuff. Now it doesn't look like that's going to happen. 
I don't know what's going to happen as far as that goes. But how do you think this is going to affect? We've seen some kids who've decided to come out. How do you think it's going to affect kids' decisions on whether to try the NBA this coming season or come back for another year of college? You know, I I think if there's ever a a year where young men are going to consider all their options and and recognize that they're not even sure right now what the NBA is going to look like. And and they're not sure how they fit in and what the circumstances are. So I, I, I would think that especially guys that are kind of on on the edge there where there's not, they're not sure things. I'm, you know, there's always eight, ten guys you just know are going to go to the draft. But guys who think they're going to be late first-rounders or maybe early second-rounders, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things that maybe they consider now going back for one more year and so things are a little more stable. Uh, you know, I, I can see that happening uh, where coaches could have conversations, collegiate coaches could have conversations, uh, agents have conversations with guys. You know what, maybe this isn't a great year. I'm not sure what, how this is going to all play out. It may be best just to come back to a sure thing. But I think the guys that are going to come out, the top 10, 12, 15, the lottery-type guys are probably still going to come out. But I, I, I do believe because of so much unknown uh, that everybody is a, a little bit, you know, we're, we're all a, a little bit panicked in that what, what's, what's happening here, you know? I mean, as part of it, you go different parts of the country are doing different things, and, you know, finally now everybody seems to be committing to quarantine, and, but there's so many unanswered questions, and uh, it, it's, it's hard to make any real important decisions right now about anything because you don't know what's going to happen the next day. And, and so what happens, typically people are pretty conservative. You know, I, I have a son that's going to be moving, and, you know, all of a sudden he says, Dad, I don't know, this is not a great time to move. I said, well, you, you're going to move because you're going to move. But I said, yeah, it is different. And, and there are circumstances. I don't know if people are going to be looking at homes right now or wanting to go or do this or that. But uh, everybody's a little skittish. Everybody's not real quick to make decisions and final plans, you know. And... I think I don't think the NBA players are going to be any different than that. I don't think the college players and their families are going to be any different than that. I think there's going to be a lot more introspection, a lot more assessment and evaluations, making sure this is the right thing. You know, I, I was with Austin Ains a few weeks ago. He was here watching uh, watching a game when Fresno State was playing uh, Wyoming, and we spent about three or four hours together. And uh, it, it was good. We had we had lunch and we started talking about the league and everything. And, I, you know, it, it is amazing to me the the depth and of, of the analytics and the projections of collegiate players. I mean, it is beyond anything I ever saw in synergy. Uh, it, it is, in, and when I was coaching, in terms of where they see them, what their ceilings are, what their strengths or weaknesses, and the analytics just go, you know, they're they're off the charts in terms of assessment of these, these young people. And, you know, basically he's got a 3% chance of making the NBA. He's got a 17% chance of making a team in the NBA. So a lot of that work has been done by all the analytic experts, all the, you know, the, the franchises. And, but it, for me, it was like, wow, this is a whole other level. And uh, I think the NBA guys kind of know themselves. You know, unlike a, a young man I coach, Paul George, who – wasn't even on the draft boards, but it played well late and got in, you know, invited by a couple of clubs to do that. 
And then he just knocked it out of the park in the interviews and all those kinds of things. And sometimes it's more than just the workout, you know. I mean, these interviews and what kind of character they have, what kind of ceiling do they have, uh, sometimes those things can really elevate a young man in the draft when he hasn't played at a P5 conference, he's never been a first-team all-leaguer, but they looked at him and said, wow, this kid has got a work ethic, he's, he's got all the intangibles that we would want in a player, plus he's grown two inches. So there's, there's going to be some guys like that every year that come out of the draft that people just kind of shake their head and, hmm, I wonder what. And, uh, and then they end up being pretty good players. So how much do you think uh, Austin and obviously Danny rely on the analytics of college players and making the NFL? And how much do you think they just look at somebody, see and talk to somebody and just know this guy's got what it takes to do whatever it takes to climb to the top of the mountain, whatever the next mountain is, whatever the next hill is? You know, uh, I, I will say this first is – it seems like every NBA team has two, three, four, five people doing this. And so it, and it's been around long enough to know that they trust the numbers. They trust the numbers. But that being said, you know, guys like Danny and, and even Austin, who's played and been around this game their whole life, there's a gut feeling that you get when you go and watch someone play. We went and watched this young man play. And he had, you know, he was, he was a young man that would be projected a couple of years from now, you know, but you got to, you know, he's a freshman, he was six, nine, and uh, you could watch him do some things you really like. And Austin would just stop and go, Ooh, that's not good. You know? And, and, and all of a sudden, you know, he, what, he's shooting 48% from the, from the field, but the shot looks a little bit broke, you know, and, and, and mind you, there's, it's early in his recruitment or his assessment, but a lot of the comments that we had together had a lot more to do with the, the effort and the bounce and you know, the things that kind of naturally came with him rather than necessarily the technical skills. And even though the numbers, the analytics showed that he's one of the best freshmen in the country, I think when Austin left, he felt like, he, he's, he's, got, he's got to have some time. He, he probably needs two, at least two more years before he can get to a point where he could, could be there. Because he had, I mean, he pulled his phone up, showed me the analytics and projected, and, you know, he, I think he, the young man had like a 7% chance of making the NBA. Well, a freshman that has a 7% chance of making the NBA is worth going and watching for a couple more years. You know, they get stronger, they get bigger, uh, they develop a shot, all the things that come with that. So uh, I, I think they... I think it always comes down to your gut feeling with your coaches, GMs, all the people that make the decisions. Because if you, if you don't have a gut feeling that this guy's – even if no matter where, where – sometimes their analytics may not be great. And, and, and things don't seem to make it – you know, but, man, this guy does so many other things that I think that he can help our team. You know, a guy like Marcus Smart. I, I don't even remember watching Marcus Smart play in college, to be honest with you. But – you know, he, he was a guy, he probably was a really good college player, but you look at him in the NBA and he's a guy that's just gotten better and better and better. Or a guy like Bruce Bowen, who, who I coached every summer for four years. He was a high school player at Edison High School here, who went to Fullerton and went to Europe and played in the G Leagues forever. You know, I, he would have never projected as a first or a second round NBA player, but, you know, seven, eight years later, he ends up winning three or four rings of the San Antonio Spurs because he figured out how to make a three and how to guard. And 
it's a specialized league, and they don't need every guy to be a dis- difference maker. They need guys that can do certain things really well, can really shoot it. But if you can get guys that can do multiple things, and obviously they're more valuable, but uh, never know the growth that a player is going to make. And so I-, I thought Austin did a great job there. I mean, it was fun talking to him about it. We watched other guys on the floor, and uh, and that was re- that was what made that day enjoyable. Just getting his feel and sense, and obviously he's around his dad a lot, and uh, who has a great mind, and obviously was a great player, and has been around. So uh, those things are both important. But uh, at, at the end of the day, analytics. Yeah, I mean, people need to know that stuff's really, really important. It puts everything in place. And then you go look for the intangibles and the chemistry things that make guys really special. I'm wondering here this year with everything being upside down and we don't know if they're going to be able to have these workouts or in, I guess they can have individual meetings, but they obviously the combine certainly looks like it could be in question. If kids should come out, if they're thinking, well, should I or shouldn't I? Should they come out now because the NBA won't have the ability, at least in the combine setting potentially, not to pick at their games? And it seems like we've seen this with football big time. A kid like Matt Leinart would have come out his junior year, would have been the number one pick, but he comes back and he ends up staying because they pick at your game a little bit and they discover flaws that maybe they didn't see when you were younger. So in that way, is this a better time for them to come out because they can't get so negative about the way you play? Well, I think there's more risk for the league if if they don't allow them to work out and don't allow them to do certain things in the weight room and all the other other things that they do, then there is more risk to the NBA. And and I think the advantage is to these young players that you're right. I mean, the, it, all the warts and issues and you know the, the deficient things they are deficient at may not come through in a in a uh, in an interview. However, they've got third, at least 25, 30, 40 you know, games that they can watch. So they've got a little bit, but guys do. I mean, that's the thing is that a, a, a young man from his sophomore year to junior year makes significant improvement. And then from his sophomore year, you know, it's, it's a, let's say it's a 6'8", 6'9", kid who was a low post player. Now he's developed where he can bounce it and he can shoot the three. And, you know, so you, you can't project those things, but you can watch a kid shot and you can see the mechanics of it. You can see, you know, if he's squared and his legs are into it and all the things. You can still study that on film and know, you know what, I know we're not going to work around, but I know this kid can shoot. And, and, and it may, maybe the collegiate or wherever he's coming from, uh, statistics prove that out. But I think you're right. There's more probably risk to miss some things on guys if you're not working them out. If you're not, I mean, they'll, they'll obviously have an interview with them. So that will mean they have to watch more film talk to more people. I know when I've had guys drafted, uh, I mean, I, I get 20 different calls from different people, you know. I mean, it's just like, tell me, tell me about this. Tell me about that. You know, you know from intangibles to, to skill set. And everybody's doing their due diligence. That's the one thing about this league is uh, the, the details of that draft you know, I mean, people sit there, well, I have no idea what's gone on for the previous, you know, six, eight months where people have been watched multiple times, lots of film, and then crunch all the numbers, figure out where that is. And, and we know that analytics aren't everything. And, and the, the, the things that, you know, 
the, the effort level, all of those things that you can't really evaluate or you know, put a number on uh, are, are critical in, in a young man's success at that level. And if he's got a motor, uh, that's going to be really important, you know, and if he's got great vertical, that's going to be important. But it, it, I, I think it would be an advantage to the players if, you know, some of the uh, maybe some of their weaknesses, they don't have to show those and uh, guys just kind of have to rely on collegiate film. But I, I don't know. I, I, I'll be honest with you. It, it, it's, it's a matter of all the bargaining that goes on before the draft and we're trying to lobby themselves to get into a specific spot looking for a specific guy right now. Pretty sure most of the NBA teams know who the first-round guys are going to be. Probably be harder with the second round. Because that NC2A tournament, that, that is a critical time. And, you know, and I'll give you an example of that. Because, and not that he ended up being a great NBA player, because – but you remember when Rafael Ruggio was playing, and he goes for like 28 and 14 or something against uh, Syracuse. I mean, he, he wasn't on the draft board. And, he, and I, there were some things looking at him, maybe a late second-round pick. And, he, and the kid played himself into – because he had a body. He had a huge upside, you know. And, they, they, you know, he goes to Toronto as a lottery. And, and so that is the negative for the kids that sometimes guys can really up their stock in the tournament when all eyes, the whole world is on you, and go, wow. And he did it against Team Oric, who ended up, you know, they, they knew he was an NBA player, and he just went for 28 and 12 or 14 against him. And he had a huge, giant body. And, you know, he, just, he didn't last in the league more than about six, five, six years. But at the end of the day, that tournament that's not happening – that hurts kids because sometimes they can play themselves into a first or a second round pick. Steve, as always, we appreciate uh, a little bit of time. Thanks for joining us and talking some hoops today. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. There's Steve Cleveland. Love having him on the show. I didn't even know to ask about the Austin Ainge story, and I thoroughly enjoyed that story. They actually have percentages on a guy's chance of making it. Holy cow. I mean, it makes sense now that you tell me, but I didn't know there was no one number. This guy's a 9% chance, and he's a freshman, so how much of a shot will he have by the time he's a sophomore? we got to watch him more. Or a junior, and we got to watch him more. Um, there are bits of that story I knew. I know that the Jazz and lots of teams uh, like to scout guys really young to see how much they improve and factor that in. Some guys don't improve. This is, if a guy hasn't improved for three years, don't think you're going to draft him and improve him, right? That seems like a long shot. Whereas if a guy has improved every year, three years in a row, draft him. He's probably going to improve the fourth and fifth year once you start working with him full time. Fascinating. Love having Steve Cleveland on and just going stream of consciousness because he starts telling you stuff. It's great. And face it, he's told us a lot of great stories, and I know he's sitting on Tarkanian stories. And if you're young and you don't know about Tarkanian stories, all I'll tell you right now, because we're out of time, is they are wildly entertaining and they are glorious. Except when they're horrifying. I know Steve's got them. He followed Tark at Fresno State. He has to have them. I don't know if we'll ever get him out of them on the air, though. But it's worth trying. All right, DJ PK coming up next. What is trending? All the headlines are on the way. Stay with us.